This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. It's 2008, and victims' rights attorney Brad Edwards is racing to the federal courthouse in West Palm Beach, Florida. I drove to the clerk's office to hand deliver this. Honestly, I had this feeling in me at that point in time. Something has to be done, and it has to be done now. He didn't know exactly what was going on, but he'd put together an urgent petition to stop whatever it was. Somebody has to do something literally right this second. He's under the belief that a major deal between the feds and Jeffrey Epstein that would affect two of his clients is about to be signed, and the chance to do something about it is winding down. I described this massive criminal operation in all of these child victims, and and they're not being communicated with about just basics of what's going on with their case. By now, a federal investigation of Jeffrey Epstein had been going on for almost two years, and Brad's clients were growing frustrated at being left in the dark. You know, what's happening? Is he going to be put in prison? Like, what is happening with this case? And the more we investigated the situation, nothing happened. Brad arrives at the court, petition in hand. This was my very first filing in any federal court. And I walked into the clerk's office and handed her this pleading and told the clerk that, look, I'm, I'm, I'm filing this and I need a hearing. Uh, this, and she said, OK, you'll, you'll get a hearing. And I said, no, I, I need a hearing today. But his emphatic demand was not well-received, he says. And she looked at me like I was absolutely crazy and said, you're not going to get a hearing today. And it, it doesn't even say that it's an emergency. I said, well, just give it back then. And I walked back over uh, where the pins are on the ledge and hand-wrote the word emergency. I walked right back over to the window and, and passed it under and said, OK, now it's an emergency. Just four days later, Brad got a hearing to find out what was going on with Jeffrey Epstein's case. I walked to the podium and the very first words out of my mouth were, Your Honor, as a factual background, Mr. Epstein is a billionaire that sexually abused and molested dozens and dozens of girls. But despite his effort, he'd realize it was already too late. I mean, my clients and I are learning for the first time that not only is a deal done, but that it was done many, many months before. Starting in 2006, Jeffrey Epstein faced a federal sex crimes investigation in Florida. Palm Beach man is accused of sexually abusing several teenagers. Deputies say Jeffrey Epstein... Palm Beach police turned over the case to the FBI after a state grand jury came back with just a single charge of solicitation of prostitution against Epstein, despite police identifying more than a dozen potential victims. They were chomping at the bit because what we had described to them and all the evidence that we gave them indicated we had a serial sex offender who uh, probably was doing this other places, had homes all over the country. We said there are more victims, they keep coming. You need to pick up the ones in other states if they exist. The FBI investigation would also identify more potential victims in Florida, but also several from outside the state. This really was a massive criminal organization that was designed in a premeditated way, designed to sexually molest children. But even facing the power of the federal government, Epstein would seem to be able to tip the scales in his favor. And through a mysterious deal with the government, he was able to slip out of serious trouble yet again. Why would you cut this deal with Jeffrey Epstein? This was a miscarriage of justice from the start, and you could scream it on top of the, the roofs all over the country. This all happened the way it did because of money. Money, power, and influence, no doubt about it. And an investigation that could have meant years in prison for Epstein would instead turn into a decades-long fight for justice by his victims. He's paid his way out of this, and the U.S. government has allowed this to happen. Why did you let this man get away with this? Well, I mean, I still want answers from 
everybody in Florida that had any part um, in, in any of this. I'm Mark Remillard, and today on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein's 2007 deal with the government that shielded him from federal prosecution in Florida and what we know about how it came together. Chapter 8. The Sweetheart Deal Friday was the grand jury. Sunday night, Epstein turned himself in. Monday morning, we learned about it from reading the newspaper. You'll remember from our first episode, Michael Ryder. He was the former police chief of the Palm Beach Police Department, which spent more than a year investigating Jeffrey Epstein between 2005 and 2006. And you'll recall that Ryder had raised serious concerns about how the local prosecutor was handling Epstein's case. He saw it totally differently than virtually everybody else from the law enforcement side that was involved in it. And after writing some of Epstein's victims to tell them that he was going to refer the case to the FBI. We received a call from the FBI asking for the case before we had the chance to give it to them. Got the uh, uh, Joe Riccari, the lead detective, and went over to the FBI and gave him the case, discussed the case at length. It took hours. Ryder says he was hopeful that with the strength of the federal government behind the case, he'd see Epstein brought to justice. You know, the courts are just more effective. The trials happen more quickly. The sentences tend to be stiffer. We thought that this would result in the kind of prosecution that it needed. We were happy that they welcomed taking the case because they, they, they told us they realized that it really needed to get done. And when they heard the way it was handled in state court, mainly by reading that in the paper, uh, they, you know, they told us, of course, this is, this is not enough. They had a very high level of confidence. As a result, we had a high level of confidence in them. And in that hours-long meeting, Ryder says he and Detective Riccari told the FBI everything they knew. They were chomping at the bit because what we had described to them and all the evidence that we gave them indicated we had a serial sex offender who uh, probably was doing this other places, had homes all over the country. We said there are more victims. They keep coming You need to pick up the ones in other states if they exist. The FBI would take over the case in the summer of 2006 and work alongside the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida. Overseeing the day-to-day investigation for the U.S. Attorney's Office was Assistant U.S. Attorney Marie Villafania, a career federal prosecutor who had been with the U.S. Attorney's Office for about six or seven years by that point. We felt lucky to have her on the case. She had, uh, asking the other FBI agents we knew in the office uh, about her, they had all said that she had, you know, great luck with these kinds of cases, that she was a a tough prosecutor. We were lucky to draw her on this case. Ryder says they briefly assisted the FBI as they took over the case. Initially, we had to introduce all the victims to them and They basically had to tell their stories again to them. There was a lot of contact between the FBI agents uh, and our detectives early on, once the FBI had taken the case, uh, and that began to wane as time went on. And with the FBI in charge, the investigation was no longer limited to Palm Beach. Agents expanded their search for victims nationwide. Once the FBI got the case, the FBI picked up where the Palm Beach Police Department left off and began uncovering more and more victims. That's Brad Edwards again, the attorney who represents Courtney Wilde and filed the emergency petition in federal court. It can't just be in Florida. So the FBI knows of victims in other states. So by all appearances, the FBI was doing exactly what they were supposed to do in tracking down victims wherever they were. This is in 2006. I'm in North Carolina in the mountains. You'll also remember artist Maria Farmer from our previous episodes. It's like nobody's there, right? And I'm thinking nobody will ever find me. By 2006, Maria's days in New York were over. She'd moved to a quiet area in North Carolina. She says her home was remote. You'd have to cross a footbridge to get to her doorstep. 
But while Maria says she was doing her best to lay low. And then somebody knocks on the door and it's this woman and a gentleman. It was the FBI. I immediately said to her, are you here about my student loans? And they both thought that was hilarious. They were like, oh, you're so adorable. Of course not. Everyone has student loans. And I was like, and she said, no, 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 no. We're here about your 1996 FBI report. I'm like, how did you find me? She's like, oh, we know everything. Ten years after Maria says she tried to sound the alarm about Epstein, she says agents had finally sought her out. I remember just kind of being shocked that they were actually going to follow through 10 years later. And I remember thinking, why did you wait 10 years? But this woman, I didn't want to hurt her feelings. She was really invested in this. She really had been working on this case. Like, I think she put her heart and soul into this case. This woman was going to get him. When the agents came to see her, Maria says she had no idea Epstein was under investigation. And while Maria says she felt a glint of hope from their visit, she still had her doubts. I also felt hopeless, too. I knew in a way that nothing would happen because nothing had for so long. But Maria says she cooperated, telling them about her alleged assault in Ohio in 1996 the young girls she'd see in Epstein's New York home, and about what happened to her younger sister, Annie, who was now living in Texas. I remember Maria letting me know that she'd spoken with the FBI, and so I had you know, an inkling she'd let them know where I was and that they would be getting in touch and coming to visit me as well. Like her sister, Annie says she didn't know that Epstein was under investigation. But by the time she was finished speaking with the agents, Annie says... She had the sense that Epstein's abuse hadn't been limited to just her and her big sister. You know, I still felt so odd about what had happened to me. And I didn't understand that there was this pattern with the massage and and, um, that that was actually a widespread thing that they would engage in with people. And while Annie says she decided she would help, she knew it would mean reopening a chapter she had tried very hard to close. Because I'd worked so hard to not think about what had happened, it was also difficult, you know, to, to start putting the memories back together. You know, it was, it was challenging just to talk about it with them. But I did feel like they really were working hard. And so that really made me feel hopeful that there would be more done and that Epstein would be held accountable. Maria and Annie Farmer weren't the only potential victims that federal investigators would speak with. By the end of their investigation, roughly three dozen others had been identified, including Courtney Wilde, who we heard from in episode one. She says she was 14 years old when she was recruited to come over to Epstein's Palm Beach home and that she later went on to recruit other girls at Epstein's insistence. Courtney first heard about Epstein's legal troubles following his first arrest in 2006, Remember, before the FBI took over, local prosecutors had brought Epstein's case to a grand jury, and they came back with a single charge of solicitation of prostitution. I came home, and I turned on the TV, and then Jeffrey's mugshots on the TV, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Courtney says federal investigators eventually came to see her. They were knocking on my door. They wanted answers. At that point, I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. And though she was worried, she decided to cooperate with investigators. When the government came to see me in the beginning, I just told them everything that I knew and exactly. They said they already knew what happened. They just wanted me to confirm. And then at that point, I just basically told them everything that happened over the years. Courtney says she was told the investigation would take time and that she needed to be patient. They sent me letters in the mail saying, "Okay, hey, listen, this is going to be a lengthy process and this could take a lot of time. But um, if you have any questions or concerns, you know, they wrote the number down. You could call us here and reach us here. Courtney says she would later reach out. But as time went on, she says it became harder and harder to get information. You know, what's happening? Is he going to be put in prison? Like, what is happening with this case? There are periods of time that we heard nothing for weeks and weeks at all about the case. Much like Courtney, former Palm Beach Police Chief Michael Ryder was having a hard time getting information as well. 
you know, the victims were calling and we were hearing nothing at all from the federal side. He'd become so concerned that in November of 2007, more than a year after he turned over the case to the FBI, Ryder says he decided to pay a visit to Marie Villafania's boss, U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta in Miami, an unusual move for a local police chief to make. It was the first time I had ever asked to speak to the United States attorney on a case. None of us had ever experienced that before, basically totally shut out of a case that we started. Ryder says he wanted to know that the case was moving forward and that Acosta would in fact prosecute Epstein. He says he was also concerned that Epstein might still be abusing girls and young women while the investigation continued. I asked him if he had the authority to make the decision of whether or not to prosecute this case. He, there was a long pause, and he responded that he did have that authority. He was a very reserved, very careful, very professional, a very protective of what he said, considered everything very carefully. And while Ryder says Acosta told him that he was the one in charge. He said, but I am getting a lot of input from Justice Department. And he said that the defense has been very effective in frustrating their prosecution, like doing things to make it more difficult to prosecute. I told him, you don't have to tell us everything that you're doing, but tell us that he's getting prosecuted. Ryder says he feared that the way state prosecutors handled the original investigation would be repeated by Acosta's office. But led me to believe that he would do his job and that he recognized this as a very serious case. I walked out of that 45-minute or so meeting believing once again that Epstein would be prosecuted by the federal government for all these charges. By mid-2008, now two years since the FBI took over the case, Courtney says she began looking for help, anyone who could help her figure out what was going on. And that's when she found Brad Edwards, the victim's rights attorney. Courtney called me. She was up in Palm Beach. And she said, hey, I'll, I'll drive to you. Um, and I said, good, come, come anytime. And she said, I'll be there in an hour. Courtney made the hour-long drive from Palm Beach to Brad's office in Hollywood, Florida, and met with Brad that same day. To her, it was an emergency that she speak with somebody and that she speak with somebody in person. Meeting Brad for the first time, he was just very understanding. He listened to what I have to say, he, and he believed me. In the same sense, I explained, hey, listen, I'm calling these people. They're not reaching out. They're not telling me what's happening. <clears throat> I want to know when we're going to court. I want to be there. I want to, you know, I want to stand up for myself. This guy sexually abused me. Look, I'm a victim of Jeffrey Epstein's, and so are many of my friends and other people that are my age. Courtney tells Brad she's afraid of Epstein. He's a powerful man. There was one time I worked at a bagel shop and Jeffrey Epstein's private investigators came up there and it was just, they just harassed me basically, but they were trying to get information. They wanted me to talk to them. She was definitely in fear. She, from the outset, was telling me, this person, you can't understand how powerful the person is. You can't understand how bad he is. He really can do bad things to me, my friends, my family. And he has investigators who are showing up at my job, pulling me out and trying to ask me questions and asking me whether I'm cooperating with the government. And it's really scary. She had what seemed to be a simple request. Her only agenda was, I want them to talk to me and tell me what's going on. I need to know what's going on. When I got in touch with Brad and, you know, I spoke with him the first couple of times, I have, you know, the government contacting me, asking me all these questions, asking me what's happening, but nobody would ever contact me back. Brad says all he thought he'd need to do was place a phone call to the U.S. attorney's office. And he was so confident that was it that he says he decided to represent her for free. Uh, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that your mind is put at ease today. And from now on, I'm on your team. We're, we're going to make sure that he gets prosecuted. You really have nothing to worry about. Brad gets to work shortly after his meeting with Courtney. 
he placed a call to the U.S. Attorney's Office, where he says he spoke with the prosecutor handling the case, Assistant U.S. Attorney Marie Viafania. She was telling me directly, hey, look, as you can imagine, this is a very big and complicated investigation and a complicated case, and I wish that I could tell you more, but right now I just can't. Brad says he pressed Viafania for more. It looks like to me that there's a spider web of children visiting, regularly visiting Epstein's house, who are definitely only there for his own sexual gratification. So just tell me the number that we're talking about. Are we talking about six? Are we talking about 600? I would ask questions like that. And Marie would say, I want to tell you the answer. I, I can't. But she gave me the impression that there was nothing to worry about. This was the massive case that it appears to be. It actually is. And everything that is supposed to happen with a case is going to happen. Brad was troubled, however, with the allegations against Epstein that he was hearing from Courtney. So Brad says he begins to look into the case himself. Through Courtney, he says he speaks with two more victims of Epstein, and each girl he spoke with had a similar story. The details that each one of them told were details you just couldn't know unless you were there. So the case was stronger than I originally even believed that it was. As Brad is finding more girls with similar stories to Courtney's, he says he offered to help Viafania with her investigation. So I came to her the second call with, you know, I'm, I'm empathetic. I, I, mean, I, I get it. How can I help you? I want to help you in every different way that I can. I'm going to make sure that this case gets prosecuted. And um, she said, thanks, there might, there might come a point in time where I ask you to do that. Um, until then, I'll let you know what's going on. Um, and she gave me the impression that it was nothing imminent, nothing soon. Uh, and to just keep your clients at bay and let them know everything's being taken care of. So that's what Brad did. He says he told Courtney to continue being patient. At this point, now June 2008, Brad says he still believed the case was moving forward and that nothing imminent was happening with it. That's when he says he gets a call from Via Fania. I was home in Jacksonville on the weekend and Marie called me and said, are you in town? I told her I'm not. And she said, well, Jeffrey Epstein is going to plead guilty in state court to, I think she said, some, some felonies. Epstein is set to plead guilty to charges in state court stemming from the original Palm Beach police investigation. But since none of Brad's clients were involved in the original police investigation, he says thanks for the info. He cared about what was happening with the federal case. What I left that call thinking was, this is pretty smart of the feds. They're going to have Jeffrey Epstein plead to whatever state crimes he's committed. And while he's in jail, they're going to continue to amass this bigger federal investigation. And then and they can kind of attack him after that. And they don't have to be worried about speedy trial or any of these things that can rush a prosecution. On June 30th, 2008, Jeffrey Epstein appeared in state court in Florida and pleaded guilty to solicitation of prostitution, the charge we heard about in episode one. But now there was an extra charge, procuring a minor for prostitution. More on that in a bit. Following Epstein's guilty plea and his sentence to 18 months in jail, Brad calls Viafania again, wondering what they were going to do next. But on the call, he says her tone was far different. And on the other end of the phone, I thought she was in tears. So Marie says, can you write to my office um, because I'm the only one having these conversations with you and what you're saying is very important? I said, of course. She asked him to write the letter so that she could provide it to other people in the office. ABC News senior producer James Hill our lead reporter on this podcast. That was one of the, the clues that he starting to wonder, like, what's going on? Why would she have to write a letter to the people in her own office 
advocating for, the, for this prosecution. So Brad writes a letter to the U.S. Attorney's Office just ahead of the July 4th weekend, still offering to help their investigation. Brad doesn't mince words about how serious he thinks the case is. In the letter, I told the U.S. Attorney's Office, I've had a very short time to look at this, and already I know that there's hundreds of victims out there. There's hundreds of crimes out there, and Jeffrey Epstein has to be the most dangerous sexual predator of all time. He needs to be prosecuted. How can I help? But despite the offer... I got no response from the letter. I called Marie and said, hey, Marie, I haven't heard back from the letter. And she said something on the telephone call that led me to believe they were now in plea negotiations with Jeffrey Epstein. Concerned a deal between Epstein and the U.S. Attorney's Office was imminent and his clients were being left out of the process, Brad says he spent the holiday weekend studying. I started looking at what are the victim's rights under the federal system. Those rights fall under a federal law called the Crime Victims' Rights Act. Which basically gives the victims of a crime some input into the process. It requires that the government confer with the victims, that the government seek out their opinion, that they are informed of important developments in the case, particularly a plea deal or a court date or a trial. And lastly, it ended with they have the right to be treated with fairness. I thought, well, no matter what you call this, this just isn't fair. You can't keep all the information to yourself and not just tell us anything about what's going on. Sensing a deal was coming. That's when Brad says he decided to intervene. Honestly, I had this feeling in me at that point in time, like something has to be done and it has to be done now. He drove to the federal court in West Palm Beach, and that's when he filed his petition, handwriting the word emergency on it. As sort of silly as it looks with my handwritten emergency, I am proud of it, you know, because if nobody would have done this, nobody would know anything. Four days later, practicing law for the first time in federal court, Brad took to the podium. Your Honor, as a factual background, Mr. Epstein is a billionaire that sexually abused and molested dozens and dozens of girls between the ages of 13 and 17 years old. And through cooperating victims, that evidence can be proven. Because of his deviant appetite for young girls, combined with his extraordinary wealth and power, he may just be the most dangerous sexual predator in U.S. history. The judge is sitting there looking at this. I'm telling him, hey, if something was done, it was done without our knowledge. In fact, not only was it done without our knowledge, we were deceived. If they're going to tell you a deal was struck, that deal, that secret deal, whatever it was, it would just be set aside They then would have to afford all the victims their rights. And then we can do this the right way. In the front row of the hearing were two of Epstein's victims, one of them, Courtney Wilde. But Brad and Courtney would find out they were too late. There was no imminent deal to stop because it had already been done. Judge Mara comes to the realization, I think himself, hey, Something's already happened. You, Mr. Edwards, on behalf of your clients, believe something was about to happen. And the reality is something already happened. He finishes his presentation. He goes to sit down. Uh, One of the prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami stands up and tells the court that, well, the deal is already done. We've already made a deal with Jeffrey Epstein. And by the way, uh, we made it nine months ago. Brad wouldn't find out the full details of the deal that day, only that it meant the federal investigation into Jeffrey Epstein was over, no federal charges were coming, and that the ink had been dry for months. I had been involved in representing my clients for a month at this point in time. And in that month, what the government is saying to the court on the record It's irreconcilable with what I had been told up to that point by Marie Villafania. If in the prior year, 2007, 
there was a deal struck between Epstein and the government. Why then would the government send letters to the victims in 2008, all the way up until June 2008, telling them that this is a lengthy investigation and to be patient? In the hallway of the courthouse, Brad says he'd see the lead prosecutor, Marie Viafania. Marie was almost in tears, apologizing. She could not talk. Marie could not talk that day. He says he tries to talk to her and the other prosecutors. I still was asking pretty basic questions. What are you sorry for? I mean, what, what happened? And they still were not able to tell me. Hoping they could tell him more about this secret deal called a non-prosecution agreement. What does the non-prosecution agreement look like? What, what is the substance of it? What does it mean? What does it mean for my clients? Does that mean he can be prosecuted for some other crimes? No questions could be answered. And uh, Marie, I want to say she really just couldn't talk. She didn't know what to say. She felt like that the office had let the victims down. A stunned Brad Edwards says he then turned to Courtney, who was standing next to him. I'm now trying to explain to Courtney in the hallway that the case is that we thought was just beginning, this long investigation that we thought was just getting underway is over. And not only is over, has been over apparently for many months, even before you were told to be patient because of this lengthy investigation. We were standing, talking in the courthouse, uh, and I remember her sitting down on the bench and putting her face in her hands and saying, um, so does this mean that he just gets away with it? And there's nothing that I could say. We walked out of the courthouse that day, and she said, um, no matter what, this, this isn't over. I, I, have to, I have to know what was worked out and why. Almost immediately, Brad and Courtney not only found themselves in the fight against Jeffrey Epstein, they found themselves in a fight against their own government. I feel lied to, betrayed. Somebody needs to be held accountable for everything that's transpired. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As Brad Edwards and Courtney Wilde were left trying to figure out what exactly happened between the federal government and Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein would be off to serve the only sentence he'd face, 18 months behind bars, but he'd end up only serving 13. And just like his secret deal, Epstein's jail sentence would be unusual too. It was very unusual. The charges he pled to were minor charges. He got some kind of a deal, but we didn't know what kind of a deal, what was the deal. We didn't know anything. You'll remember journalist Michelle Dargan from our first episode. 
She's the former reporter for the Palm Beach Daily News who covered Epstein's case as it was unfolding. After the hearing and after he pleaded guilty, we found out he went to serve his time in the Palm Beach County stockade, which is like nobody serves their time in the Palm Beach County stockade. There's hardly anybody in there. And it was very unusual that you would serve prison time for a state sentence in the Palm Beach County stockade. The stockade might conjure mental pictures of 17th century punishment, a prisoner with his hands and head in the stocks. But in Palm Beach County, the stockade was in fact an entirely separate facility from the main jail, one where Epstein was kept away from the general population and even left with his cell door unlocked. All the journalists were like, well, why is he in the stockade? We later learned that he was in his own wing of the Palm Beach County stockade. It was a vacant wing of the Palm Beach County stockade. So he had his own wing. The stockade is kind of a lower security thing. It's just a smaller uh, kind of prison. It's just very small, though. Epstein would even be granted work release that sometimes allowed him to go home. And by the end of his sentence, he was able to leave the stockade for up to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. A sex offender, you know, person who's, you know, molesting a minor. Like I said before, you read in the paper every day. They go to, you know, prison for 20, 30 years. Epstein's plea in state court to two felony charges did result in him having to register as a sex offender. But it spared him the possibility of time in federal prison, even state prison, making his brief time behind bars even easier. I've never heard of anybody doing their sentence in the stockade. Of course, if you get sentenced on state charges, usually you go to state prison, and that wasn't done either. Even now, more than a decade later, the question of why Epstein was housed in the stockade and given work release are the subject of an ongoing investigation ordered by the governor of Florida in 2019. As Epstein served his lenient sentence, Brad Edwards was getting to work to try and figure out how this all happened. And his first order of business was to find out exactly what this mysterious deal between the federal government and Jeffrey Epstein was. Just because Brad knew there was a deal didn't mean he was allowed to see it. They fought us on it. We had to get a court order before the victims were even able to see the non-prosecution agreement that was virtually an immunity agreement that was signed September 24th, 2007, between Jeffrey Epstein and, and the government. Edwards has to appeal to the court for permission to see the, the document. And you know, eventually he's given a copy, but at, at first he's told he can't share it with anyone other than his clients. So he can't go public and say, look at what just happened. Look at this. He has to keep it to himself until you know, later in the process and through other uh, cases in the state courts that eventually the full non-prosecution agreement is made public. And when the full deal was finally made public, victims of Jeffrey Epstein say it was like another punch to the gut. Felt like I had just been betrayed. I can't make any sense of how, you know, there's a solution without the victim being involved. And they excluded the victim from the solution entirely. Thinking now about how the situation was handled, it just, it, it's really sickening to me. On the one hand, it's just, it's hard to believe that they, that this could be done and that, that they could get away with it. It makes me so mad because it's not right. If I did something like this, I'd be in jail the rest of my life because I'm a Joe Schmo and we go to jail and we go to prison and and we have to go through the the justice system and the and the law matters why does it not matter for him the secret deal between Jeffrey Epstein and the federal government was spelled out in 7 pages that were finally unsealed in court records in September 2009 2 years after the document was signed and more than a year since Brad had filed his petition to try and stop it. And at that point, we did find out that was there was a deal struck where if Jeffrey Epstein pleaded guilty to these two state charges and he served his 
time, which he was given 18 months, which, as I said, he served in the Palm Beach County stockade, that he would not be charged federally. Any federal crimes would go away. No federal charges. In exchange for a guilty plea in state court, the federal government had agreed to end its investigation of Jeffrey Epstein and walk away. But the devil was in the details. It turned out it wasn't just Epstein who received immunity. Also, in a non-prosecution agreement, it gave immunity to his co-conspirators. You might look at uh, a typical federal investigation of a conspiracy and you might see offers of immunity to people lower down in the chain with the uh, uh, object of getting testimony that helps you put away the, the top. In this case, it appears to have been inverted where Epstein was granted the deal and he was able to protect those below him and allegedly below him in the, in the, in the conspiracy. The non-prosecution agreement named four names, but it also said any and all others who may have helped him, they're all granted immunity, according to the deal. We have this very strange provision in the non-prosecution agreement that immunizes not only Jeffrey Epstein and certain named co-conspirators, but also all co-conspirators, whether they're known or they're unknown, there's no good explanation for giving immunity to not only Jeffrey Epstein, but let me just hand it out to the named conspirators and then throw it in there and all other co-conspirators. There's people who got immunity from that deal that haven't even been identified. Initially, we didn't know that the provision for immunity for co-conspirators unnamed uh, and otherwise uh, were part of, was a part of the deal. We didn't know that. I didn't know that until sometime later. Brad Edwards says explaining the deal to Courtney was difficult. But just like after that first court hearing, he says Courtney wasn't deterred. Before I left her place that day, she said, we're not stopping. We're, I'm never going to stop until I know exactly what happened and why. After finally getting to see what the deal was, Brad and Courtney's fight would then shift to trying to have it torn up. And it's through their effort over years of court battles that thousands of pieces of evidence would be turned over showing how Epstein's immunity deal came to be. And then it became a lot more clear as the case progressed that Courtney was taking on two parties that have almost been aligned lockstep for 10 years, which was the government and Jeffrey Epstein at the same time. So it has been Courtney fighting the guy who abused her and the people who were supposed to protect her and didn't. Through all the evidence that has been released over the past decade, it's now possible to get a good look at how Epstein's secret plea deal came together and to see just how jaw-dropping it was. I mean, what we're looking at are, these are called privilege logs, which are basically um, indication of documents or um, items of evidence that the government has in its possession. In thousands of pages of court filings reviewed over five years by ABC News senior producer James Hill, we can see how expansive the federal investigation of Jeffrey Epstein was. They looked at his bank records, his companies. They were all over the place uh, looking into Epstein's life. You have here subpoenas and documents uh, to Hyperion, to JEGE. Those are the companies that ran Epstein's uh, airplanes. And as he and I sat down to look through some of these records, it's clear that in 2006, the FBI's investigation was in full swing working to identify more victims. They go way beyond the original investigation, which was really just looking into the question of whether Epstein had uh, effectively created this network of young girls and women who uh, he recruited to his home and paid them in, in, in exchange for you know, lurid or sexualized massages. They can begin to look in New York. They know he has a place in New Mexico. They know he has a place in the United States Virgin Islands. And in our review of all those records, 
it becomes utterly baffling that Jeffrey Epstein was able to avoid federal prosecution in 2008. You'll recall from our first episode that in the original investigation of Jeffrey Epstein by the Palm Beach Police Department, former police chief Michael Ryder says Epstein's attorneys were tenacious in protecting him. Well, it'd be no different during the federal investigation. Journalist Michelle Dargan. Jeffrey Epstein had the dream team of attorneys, the all-stars of the all-stars, who pulled out all the stops. Epstein's attorneys would be in regular contact with prosecutors, arguing that it simply wasn't a federal case, that it didn't fit into any federal crimes. Epstein's attorneys were saying that the government was effectively uh, stretching them in novel ways to try to fit the facts into the statute. And the investigation more appropriately belonged with the state of Florida and that the state of Florida had investigated for a year and decided to do X with it. And that's the way it should stay. Assistant U.S. Attorney Marie Viafania and the FBI continued their investigation, though. At one point, putting together a lengthy draft indictment against Epstein. In May of 2007, the U.S. Attorney's Office had prepared a 53-page criminal indictment against Jeffrey Epstein that related to 12 victims, 12 minors at the time. I mean, Marie Viafania was a prosecutor that was a good prosecutor that wanted Jeffrey Epstein and the co-conspirators prosecuted, that was putting together a solid prosecution. But that indictment would go nowhere. And to this day, it's never been released. It's never filed because at some point the defense attorneys come to the prosecutor and say, we want to make a deal. So in the, in the summer of 2007, somebody above the rank of Marie Viafania in the United States Attorney's Office in Miami, at the time led by Alexander Acosta, somebody instructs her to make the deal. And here is where things completely derail. Not only does Viafania say in court records that she was instructed to make a deal, she says she was given specific parameters to follow. And these narrow parameters make no sense when you consider the evidence federal investigators had uncovered by this point. They went into it saying, you'll pay restitution, you'll register as a sex offender, and you'll serve two years. And of course, as we've heard, those two years would become 18 months in a county jail, of which he'd only serve 13. So how does Epstein end up in a county jail when he could have wound up in federal prison? According to Viafania's court filings, the narrow and lenient requirements she was told to make a deal from proved virtually impossible. She went down a rabbit hole of possible felonies and misdemeanors to charge Epstein with, but she simply couldn't make anything work. You can't just make up a crime that Epstein didn't commit and have him plead to it and get the 18 months. You've got to find something that he actually did. And as a side benefit for Epstein, during all of this, as the negotiations proceeded, the investigation slowed. The next, you know, several months of her life are all focused on finding appropriate resolution that is acceptable to the office, acceptable to Epstein. And when it was clear there wasn't a plea deal that could be made under those specific parameters. In a still unexplained decision that would fundamentally change the lives of dozens of women, the U.S. Attorney's Office decided not to change the terms to something harsher, but instead send the case back to the state attorney and offer Epstein a non-prosecution agreement. It was a hot potato. I think uh, the state attorney was happy that it went to the feds and not very happy about it coming back to the state. The irony of all that is, of course, the feds picked up the case in the first place because of their dissatisfaction with how it had been handled at the local level by the local prosecutor. And then after spending a year investigating and another several months negotiating, the end result is that they shove it back in the state. And in doing so, Epstein was required to reach an agreement with the local prosecutor on a charge that would require him to register as a sex offender, 
which is how he ended up pleading guilty to solicitation of prostitution, but also that new charge, procuring a minor for prostitution. The law labeled them as prostitutes. The laws need to change. The statute basically addresses prostitution with a child, which is impossible. Prostitution conveys that there isn't a victim in this, that a person is willing, and a child can't be willing. A child can't consent to this. It's such a deep hurt, you know, to be called those things. And even at a young age, it's, that's not okay. That will never be okay to be identified as that and be okay with that. When Brad told me that he got this really lenient sentence, when Brad Edwards told me that, I felt so disheartened, crestfallen, actually. And when I heard later about how they referred to the children as prostitutes, I felt like, I just felt like this was just the most hopeless thing and that these people were just winning and that our government didn't care because they didn't. Yeah, they didn't care about us. A year-long investigation by the Palm Beach police identifies, you know, uh, five felony charges that they, the police believe he should be charged with. Then the FBI investigates this man for more than a year, uh, identifying 30-plus potential victims of sex crimes against minors. And the end result is that they tack on one charge, one charge of procuring a minor into prostitution. That is the how. But the questions to this day remain the who and the why. Who made the decision above Viafania's head that Epstein should serve at most two years when they already knew of more than 30 potential victims and perhaps just as confounding, why did the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2007 decide to enter into negotiations with Epstein in the first place? It certainly seems that of all the benefits Jeffrey Epstein got from making a deal with the federal government in 2007, the biggest one is that eventually the investigation stopped. And as we've learned through our reporting, winding down that investigation kept them from digging deeper into the true extent of Epstein's crimes across the country. I mean, the feds were certainly under no obligation to enter into a deal with Jeffrey Epstein. They could have kept going. They could have found more. In the months after federal prosecutors had reached a deal with Epstein, but before he'd plead guilty in 2008, they'd learn of a potential victim outside of Florida who may have been the key to unraveling Epstein's abuse in New York. So it's the spring of 2008, and the FBI agents uh, are meeting with a potential Epstein victim in New York City. This is, at the time, this is a, a young woman of approximately 18 or 19 years old. And according to our investigation, we know that prosecutors were attempting to get this young woman to testify. What we don't know is what she told investigators back in 2008, but we know that she would later file a lawsuit against Epstein's estate in 2019, giving us a window into what she says happened to her. We know that years later, after Epstein's death, this same young woman filed a lawsuit against Epstein's estate, alleging that she had been recruited into Epstein's world of sexual abuse when she was 14 years old. And she says that she, Epstein uh, sexually abused her countless times over a period of three years and that she was paid by Epstein. She also says that she was encouraged to recruit other girls, uh, you know, in a very similar fashion that we've heard from these girls in Florida. This girl is saying that she essentially was operating in a similar network of young girls in New York City. So a young woman who says she was recruited to come to Epstein's New York home as a 14-year-old and was sexually abused and then later recruited other girls in the city was known to federal authorities in Florida before Epstein pleaded guilty and they officially closed their case. And for the first time, our lead reporter, ABC News's James Hill, has learned that this same woman would become a central figure in the new indictment filed against Epstein in 2019, charging him with conspiracy and child sex trafficking. I can tell you that this woman who was visited by the FBI 
in 2008. Eleven years later, she was one of the people, one of the victims who was central to the new indictment of Jeffrey Epstein in 2019. She's minor victim number one. She's the only victim identified by, you know, specifics in the indictment who was from New York. That means for 11 years, this woman's file appears to have sat idle in the case file of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida. So with all the evidence that was discovered between 2005 and 2008, more than 30 potential victims, one of whom was later central to the 2019 indictment against Epstein, you have to wonder why. Why shut down the investigation and agree to begin negotiating with Epstein? It is pretty troubling, right, that 11 years later, we still don't know the why. Why would you cut this deal with Jeffrey Epstein? Why would you immunize not only him, but all of his friends and employees and everyone who helped him get away with this big scheme to sexually abuse children for what looks like more than a decade? Why, if you're going to do that, why wouldn't you tell the victims anything? Why would you keep it from them? What is the motive here? How can you make any sense of what you did? Alex Acosta left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2009 and in 2016 was tapped by President Trump to be his labor secretary. The nominee for secretary of the Department of Labor will be Mr. Alex Acosta. But following Epstein's arrest in 2019, the scrutiny of Epstein's sweetheart deal was intense. In a press conference four days after Epstein's arrest, Acosta defended the deal between Epstein and his office, saying it was the reason Epstein ended up as a registered sex offender. Further, the state attorney's office allowed Epstein to self-surrender and arraigned him the following morning. Simply put, the Palm Beach State Attorney's Office was ready to let Epstein walk free. No jail time. Nothing. Prosecutors in my former office found this to be completely unacceptable. And they became involved. Our office became involved. Without the work of our prosecutors, Epstein would have gotten away with just that state charge. Now, many today- the local state attorney at the time, Barry Krischer, issued a statement following the press conference disputing Acosta's comments, accusing Acosta of trying to rewrite history, adding that if Acosta thought Epstein was getting off too easy, he should have indicted him federally. Acosta's press conference wouldn't relieve the pressure, and despite having the support of President Trump, just two days later, on July 12, 2019, Acosta announced his resignation. But I just want to let you know, this was him, not me, because I'm with him. He was a, he's a tremendous talent, and in so many ways, I just hate what he's saying now, because we're going to miss him. But please, We've attempted to reach Acosta for comment, but he has not responded. Meanwhile, Prosecutor Marie Villafania has also since left the U.S. Attorney's Office. But outside of court filings, she has not discussed what happened in the negotiations of Epstein's deal as the Department of Justice has maintained privilege over its internal deliberations. In our attempts to reach her for a comment, we've received a statement from her attorney. The statement from the lawyer says that, you know, if, if, if the Justice Department were to waive that privilege, uh, Viafania believes that the, the public would get a much fuller and more accurate picture of her role uh, in, the, in the negotiations and uh, and she says that, you know, how she advocated for victims at every turn. Viafania has said in court filings, though, that she was not opposed to reaching some kind of deal with Epstein, in large part because she thought it would spare the victims from being dragged through the mud by Epstein's attorneys at trial. But she says she was not a part of the process that decided Epstein should only serve two years. According to a number of people I've spoken to who are familiar with uh, what transpired in the U.S. Attorney's Office 
uh, in making this deal. At the end of the day, Maria Villafania was heartbroken that she felt very disappointed uh, about the outcome. However lenient, however controversial, however baffling Epstein's deal with the federal government may be, the decision to make the deal was entirely within the rights of Alex Acosta and the U.S. Attorney's Office. But what made the deal seem so much worse and what a court ultimately ruled violated the law was that the government did it in the shadows. I don't have any memory of ever being informed that the that the charges had been settled that way and that he would be um, you know, so lightly reprimanded for this like ongoing widespread scheme. It's important to me for just there's you always when something happens to you, it's just always to hold somebody, whether it's yourself or whoever accountable for that and saying he's going to pay the price. It, that never happened. And this is what has fueled Brad and Courtney's fight against the federal government for the past decade. Their argument that the deal is invalid since it was done in violation of Courtney's and the other victims' rights, namely to confer with prosecutors and to be made aware of important developments in the case. And in the center of the fight was Courtney Wilde, she could have walked away at the very beginning, after that first hearing. After she got the non-prosecution agreement, she could have walked away. And many steps since then, she chose to fight. And she's made it very clear, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not finish, I'm not stopping this fight until it's over. And there is nothing else that I can possibly fight. I'm right there with her. I agree. Courtney says her remorse for recruiting other girls at Epstein's insistence has fueled her fight and strengthened her resolve. I would never want this to, for one, happen again to anybody else. And the fact that this, just because he's um, he has connections and he has a lot of money, he's paid his way out of this, and the U.S. government has allowed it. Why? Why is this happening? Why did you let this happen? Her biggest motivation has always been, I brought others into this who were also victimized and their lives were negatively impacted and some ruined. And I was drawn in and played a role in that. And for them, I have to see this through. And she's in it for the long haul. I mean, there's, there's just there's no quit in her. So uh, unfortunately for the U.S. Attorney's Office, they got the wrong person on the other side if they think that she's going to back down. Their long haul fight would take a dramatic turn in 2019, when in February, a federal judge gave Brad and Courtney the decision they'd been waiting for. He ruled in February that um, the non-prosecution agreement that was signed in September of 2007 was signed before any victims were ever told anything. So that violated the right the victims had to meaningfully confer with the prosecutor in the case before it was resolved. All right, we got this ruling. We know that. Now, what's the, what's the remedy for it? The obvious remedy is... It's an illegal deal, so it's invalid. It's void. You rescind it. Well, it was an illegal immunity agreement. What we don't know is if we ask for that remedy, which we have always asked for that remedy, if we get it, what does the government do? And what seemed like an even further sign of hope when Epstein was arrested. Uh, we're going to begin now with the arrest of the mega wealthy financier Jeffrey Epstein. He is due in federal court here in New York today on new sex trafficking charges after a raid on his Manhattan mansion Saturday. Would be dashed a little more than a month later. Epstein was found dead in his cell early this morning. Jeffrey Epstein has done nothing but manipulate our justice system where he has never been held accountable for his actions even to this day. Jeffrey Epstein robbed myself and all the other victims of our day in court to confront him one by one, and for that, he is a coward. 
Next week, on the final episode of Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein's victims finally get their day in court, but it's hardly the circumstances that they'd been hoping for. And though Epstein may be dead, another battle has just begun. The fight over his estate. Today, we announce the unsealing of sex trafficking charges against Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein was arrested this past Saturday evening at Teterboro Airport aboard his private jet that had just landed from Paris, France. I'm here in New York. Um, I've been We've been waiting for this day forever, and now it's finally came, so it's almost unimaginable that it finally, he's in handcuffs for once, how he should be. That's the thing that gets to me, is that this is still going on, and it's like, okay, eh. It's been going on like 14 years-ish, you know. I really, I came here because I wanted to get that chance to see him again and see him, like, be put away or hopefully eventually be put away. Um, Thanks for joining us. We are coming on the air with breaking news. Sources telling ABC News that Jeffrey Epstein has died. Truth and Lies. Jeffrey Epstein is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio, written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard, produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, Chris Francescani, as well as senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Tiffany Omohundro, Hallie Freger, Prithvi Takei, Kate Holland, Caroline Highland, and Alexandra Myers. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, Betsy Shore, Maria Matasarpadia, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Vlasto is Senior Executive Producer. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.